This morning, we continue the preaching through Galatians. And so, if you have your copy of the Word with you, I invite you to take it up. And we will focus this morning on verses 13 through 15. But that we might have the fuller context, I will read now the entire chapter. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you, whoever you are justified by the law. Ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed of one another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Our Heavenly Father, how good it is to come before Your Word, to read these words, to hear them, and to meditate upon them. Not merely to accumulate facts found there, not merely to hone the fine points of our doctrines revealed in these words, and not merely to fulfill our Christian duty, 
but to feast upon them and to take them deeply into our hearts and minds and grow and change thereby. For you have said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. We therefore pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to open our ears to hear and awaken our minds to comprehend and prick our hearts to bring application that it may accomplish your perfect will and your holy will. For as your word goes forth, it will not return unto you void, but it shall accomplish that which you please. And it will indeed prosper the thing whereunto you sent it. This is our desire. And this is our prayer, which we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. In our text for this morning, we find a contrast set before us. A contrast delivered with apostolic authority in both exhortation and warning. And as we consider the wonderful life-giving liberty we have in Christ, a liberty which has removed from us the burden of the law and bondage to sin, and a liberty that by grace has freed us to love and to serve our neighbors and make manifest the goodness of what God has revealed in His Word, we are not, we are exhorted to not exercise this liberty in our flesh, but rather to love and serve one another. We are also warned that if we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves and begin to bite and devour one another, we may end up consuming one another and thereby destroying one another. Paul writes, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Here Paul reminds the Galatians that they were called to freedom in Christ. That they are not to return to the yoke of the bondage of the law. However, Paul did not want the Galatians to use their Christ-given freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Instead, he wanted them to be free to serve one another in love. But what does he have in mind here? Paul continues, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. We considered in a previous message that it is possible that the false teachers had accused Paul of antinomianism, that is, lawlessness. And that was because of his teaching on circumcision. Of course, Paul would have nothing to do with this sort of accusation. He stood upon the truth and continued teaching that a person's justification, that his righteous standing before God, was received by grace alone, through faith alone, with no works mixed in. And this justification leads to his sanctification. And this sanctification inevitably produces good works. It shows itself by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and all the rest. So what is the result of seeking justification by works instead of by faith? Paul continues and warns about the kind of fruit you find in the false gospel of works righteousness. 
But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. The pursuit of justification by faith and works results in cursing, death, bondage, division, and strife. If we look to secure our standing by our works, we will immediately begin to compare ourselves to one another and to seek to establish a hierarchy of righteousness, one based on our own personal achievements. And such a path automatically and inevitably leads to division, strife, and self-seeking. This is living and acting in the flesh. And this is why Paul warns the Galatians about devouring one another. If on the other hand, they seek their their justification and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they receive the outpouring of the Spirit. The outpouring of the Spirit that prompts and empowers them to serve one another and to love one another. Notice the absolute contrast. A contrast between flesh and spirit. Between devouring and serving. This passage, of course, draws attention to that life-changing power. The power that changes and affects us from the inside out. It affects us in modeling what Christ has done for us. It is the life-transforming power of the Gospel. Apart from the work of Christ and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, we are incapable of true biblical love. Apart from the work of Christ, we will typically view the world through a self-centered lens, not a Christ-centered lens. All tends to be about me and not so much about others. This is the default worldview of the old man. This is the dog-eat-dog view of the world, of life that some have referred to. And we need to remember, love is not some sort of warm, emotional, gooey feeling, though it can certainly involve those emotions. Rather, love is concrete, sacrificial, self-effacing service which is exemplified and made manifest in the ministry and life of Christ. His life for others. His death in the place of our death. His resurrection for our resurrection. We must keep the work of Christ through the Spirit in the foreground as when we look to Paul's instruction here to the Galatians to love one another. As I said, truth be told, we are simply incapable of true, God-pleasing love apart from the indwelling presence of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. This means we need the power of the Spirit working in our lives through God's appointed means of grace, word, sacraments, and prayer so that as the Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ, and enables us to love rightly, and provokes us to humble service, we are living a life of gospel obedience. And gospel obedience requires that we love our neighbors as ourselves. 
So let us ask the following questions and consider how we would answer them. Now this is a serious question. How we would answer them in all soul-probing honesty as we stand before our holy God. Do we treat those around us with respect? Do we treat those around us as we ourselves want to be treated? Do we truly love our neighbors? Do we put our love for our neighbor into tangible action? Do we hear a rumor about someone? And then do we pass it along? Do we become a part of a given problem rather than part of the solution by yielding to the desires of the flesh and thereby furthering strife and division in our relationships and within the fellowship of the church? Are we willing in all of our busyness and distractions to yield some of our limited time and energy to serve someone else sacrificially? Then there's that other side of love. So often these days, people tend to disassociate correction and rebuke from love. In our modern culture, a rebuke is more often received as an act of hatred rather than as an act of love. Paul was willing to confront the sin he encountered with plain directness. To use perhaps an all-too-common Contemporary illustration, a living and live illustration is reflected by our prayer time this morning. And I almost hesitate to use the illustration, but it, it speaks to the heart. Let's say that during a routine checkup with your doctor, you discover an aggressive, he discovers a, an aggressive tumor in your body that would soon kill you if left untreated. What would you want him to tell you? Would you want the doctor to look at you, smile, and say everything is just fine? Would you want the doctor to tell you not to worry or perhaps just say, it happens to a lot of people? No, of course not. Anything but telling you the truth would be a form of medical malpractice. Or to set it in this context, it would be a failure to serve one another in love. So what does love require? The doctor, as uncomfortable as it might be, would have to give you the hard truth so that you could begin treatment right away. Medicine, surgery, or whatever it is may be called for. Just as when Paul told the false teachers that he wished they would emasculate themselves, we often need to hear and speak the loving and clear medicine of truth. When we love someone with the love that we have in Christ and gently turn them away from speaking rumors or help them to see their complaining spirit or privately let them know that they were belittling in their speech, we are providing a dose of the medicine needed such that, Lord willing, it will eventually lead to a cure. Admittedly, this is difficult to do well. And for some of us, it may even seem impossible or wrong to even try. The real question is, do we love our brother or our sister? Do we truly love the bride of Christ? 
If necessary, are we willing to confront the one who gossips since they are spreading cancer throughout the body of Christ? If we love one another, then yes, that is precisely what we would do. As I mentioned earlier, in our passage this morning, we see a clear contrast, a dichotomy, if you will, presenting presented regarding the liberty which we have been called to. We are to not to use this liberty we have in Christ for an occasion to the flesh, but rather we are to love, by love, serve one another. As Paul writes in verse 17, for the flesh lusteth against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Paul's central exhortation in this chapter may then be seen as what we read in verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But if we do use our liberty as an occasion for the flesh, and we all do from time to time, if we do this, Paul warns in verse 15, if ye bite and devour one another, take heed. Take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. And this is the question we will consider for the remaining part of this message. How is this warning, this warning in verse 15, applicable to us and to all Christians throughout all ages? How can we consider Paul's warning and truly take heed to not bite and devour and consume one another? One of the things I very much appreciate about the writings that we have from from the Puritan pastors and theologians is they're bent to reflection upon the Word of God and expositing sometimes in exhausting detail biblical truths and bringing application of these truths to the flocks under their care. If you've ever read the Puritans, it, it is both a delight and it can be tedious, but often rewarding. Thomas Brooks was one such Puritan writer who is probably best known for his precious remedies against Satan's devices. In his introduction, Word to the Reader, in that work, Brooks writes, Brooks writes, Remember, it is not hasty reading, but serious meditating upon holy and heavenly truths that make them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. It is not the bee's touching of the flower which gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower which draws out the sweet. It is not he who reads most, but he who meditates most who will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christians. Later in his introduction, he writes, We are not ignorant of Satan's devices or plots or machinations or stratagems. He is but a Christian in title only who has not personal experience of Satan's stratagems. His set and composed machinations, his artificially molded methods, his plots, darts, depths, whereby he outwitted our first parents. The main observation that I shall draw from these words is this, that 
Satan has his several devices to deceive, entangle, and undo the souls of men. And so then Brooks comes to consider Satan's particular devices against the saints of God. And in doing so, he turns and reflects upon our passage, Galatians 5.15. And so, giving due credit and appreciation to his efforts, I will leverage his basic outline as a guide throughout the remainder of this message and even into the next. This morning, we will focus on the negative side of Paul's warning here in verse 15. And then next time, Lord willing, we will turn our attention to the positive side and work through 12 precious remedies that Brooks identifies in Scripture for this particular device that Satan uses against the saints of God. So once again, verse 15. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Paul is warning the church that if they use their liberty in Christ according to the flesh, they will embark on a road that leads to their destruction, a road to cannibalism, speaking by way of metaphor. But as with any journey along a road, there is a beginning point and there is a destination. You don't simply get from point A to point B instantaneously. There is a process. There is a progression that takes time. As you give yourself to the journey, you travel further along the road and get ever closer to your destination. This is common sense to everyone here, and the analogy applies as we travel along the road to destruction. And this is where I find Brooks' reflection most helpful. He writes, One great device that Satan has to destroy the saints is by working first in them to be strange and then to divide, and then to be bitter and jealous, and then to bite and devour one another. Satan's devices are clever. And when we dwell in the flesh, when we work our way along this four-step process, Brooks outlines, we become ever more blinded by our sin and drawing ever closer to the consuming and devouring of one another. But leading up to verse 15, we read verses 13 and 14, and we find two truths. First, regarding our salvation in verse 13, and secondly, about the law of God in verse 14. The truth we see in verse 13 is that the reason we have been saved is to lovingly serve one another. Salvation is not just about individuals. It is not just about individuals getting to heaven which is so often our focus and concern. Rather, we need to remember that God has delivered us from the bondage of our sin so that we may enter into the body of Christ and entering into His body, we are called to serve and love and build up one another. The reason we have been saved, the reason God has set us free from sin, death, and hell is so that we might benefit the body of Christ. And the second truth that we find is that the whole law of God is fulfilled in this one word, this one concept, as we love our neighbor as ourselves. And there's a reason God gives us for doing so. As we read earlier in the service from 
Leviticus 19, he answers, he, de- he explains the reason I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. Excuse me, let me read that again. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Why does God answer? I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I am the Lord your God. This is the reason we are to love and serve our neighbor. These two truths are why we have been saved and to what we have been saved. Satan is not satisfied simply to leave you in your sin or keep you in your sin. His devices are much more grandiose and wicked. He desires to destroy the body of Christ. And in your sin, and in my sin, these are merely the steps along the way. These are merely tools in His hands to that one great end. His goal is for us to consume one another. And the first step on the road to destruction, step one, we become strange to one another. Said another way, there, there is a sense of cooling and coldness that enters into our relationships with one another. There's a strangeness. And I trust you know what I mean here. When you have an issue with a brother or a sister, you don't immediately jump from sweet fellowship and love for that person to immediately attacking them. It begins more slowly than that, does it not? There's a process. It begins with a thought regarding an offense or maybe judging some motive. Perhaps it began with an unkind word or a thoughtless act by that person. Perhaps you are put off or offended by what you perceive to be a poor application of some biblical principle or exercise in Christian liberty. Whatever the case may be, there is a cooling of the relationship that results. What was once comfortable has now become strange and awkward. And so rather than pursuing that individual and seeking understanding or bringing the offense to his attention, you hang on to whatever the issue is. And so plant the first seed of discord. Or to hearken back to the earlier illustration, the first cancer cells have been identified, but no treatment is pursued. Sadly, this is the same old story that we have been living throughout the ages. As Brooks puts it, Our own woeful experience is too great a proof of this. The Israelites in Egypt did not more vex one another than Christians in these days have done. This has been the temptation and experience of God's people under Moses and the temptation and experience of the Puritans 400 years ago. And it is also our temptation and experience. It becomes the seedbed of sin when we yield to the temptation of our flesh. When we begin to harbor strangeness and coldness toward our brother, it is is a warning sign along the road to destruction that we are giving way to our flesh 
and not following the leading of the Spirit. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death, as we read in James. When we first see this signpost of strangeness or coldness toward our brother or sister, it is the first and best place to turn around and head the other way. There will be no easier place to exit the road to cannibalism than at this first marker of one of Satan's great devices against the saints of God. Stop. Get off the road. Take the issue to your brother. In all humility, seek understanding. Repent of your cold affections. Pursue reconciliation and love your brother without reservation. This is the true liberty we have in Christ. This is what we are called to. This is how we exit the road to destruction. Otherwise, we will surely proceed to step two. We divide one from another. It is sad to say, but I believe the second step on the road to cannibalism is actually unavoidable when we fail to turn back at step one. Strangeness and coldness toward a brother leads quickly and inevitably to division. Let us take a look at an example of this within the Corinthian church from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-3. through 3. We find Paul addressing a division within the church. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for unto now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are not able to, you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Paul teaches that when we give way to division, it is an evidence that we are carnal. That is, acting according to the flesh of the old man. Now we need to note that he is speaking to Christians here. Christians that are using their liberty for an occasion to the flesh. And just before chapter 3 and chapter 2, he was referencing an unconverted man. The natural man, he is called when he writes. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things. We have the mind of Christ. The clear implication here is that as those who have received and believed the Gospel, we have the mind of Christ. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we ought to know that divisions are contrary to the unity we have in Christ. Divisions in the body of Christ are a manifestation of carnality, a sign that we have indeed a given, given occasion to the flesh, and it is something therefore that we need to repent of. 
divisions ought not to be tolerated. They ought not to become comfortable. Divisions in the body should feel like a pebble in our shoe. We should be compelled to stop, remove our shoe, and get rid of the pebble and turn back to the comfortable, loving road of Christian fellowship. Division should be noted by those around us who love us enough to encourage reunification and restoration. We should see division as an externalizing of the sickness within. The cancer has now become evident to those around us and the best hope for us is early treatment. Treatment that removes the division and brings a healthy unity. And we must come to the humbling acknowledge that this treatment will require surgery. Pride and selfish uh, anger have, have brought this division and so they now must be removed. As division is an outward sin, so outward repentance is called for. But thanks be to God, His grace is bountiful and His mercy is new each and every day. Brothers and sisters, if you have traveled down this road and reached the warning sign labeled division, if coldness of heart has grown into physical distance and avoidance, if you really aren't able to enjoy the company of one of the saints, please stop. Consider the road that you are on and seek the Lord's strength in repentance and pursue restoration of love toward your brother or sister. Put off the pride. Deal with the offense or whatever is causing the division. And don't continue down this road. For the next step is step three. We become bitter and jealous toward one another. Bitterness and jealousy. At this point on the road to cannibalism, the starting point of the journey is seen far, far away. Maybe even too far to see. Bitterness and jealousy are blinding. They are like a mindness that, madness that fills the mind and these things keep us from thinking about situations rightly. They keep us from seeing things clearly. They become almost an all-consuming end unto themselves. And wherever jealousy is found, its ugly cousin, envy, is not far away. Proverbs 14.30 says, A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Returning to our cancer analogy, when bitterness sets in, we have arrived at the point in the disease where the cancer has metastasized. It has spread and is growing and affecting more and more of our lives. And now, any information that we hear regarding our brother that we have distanced ourselves from is received and distorted as it passes through the filter of bitterness and jealousy. It becomes almost impossible to hear the truth. A root of bitterness has taken hold. We have failed to heed the exhortation from Hebrews 12 to pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, 
many become defiled. Bitterness is defiling. Bitterness is an invasive weed that left unchecked quickly takes over the garden of our Christian lives. In the absence of pursuing peace and holiness with all people, it springs up and causes trouble and its defiling work is begun. Bitterness spreads quickly and it is rarely contained. It spreads to our family members. It spreads to our close confidants and it seeks sympathizing soil in which to cast its seed. It chokes out the good and productive fruit in our lives as it overtakes and casts its long shadow on the good plants in the garden. The weed of bitterness must be sought out and plucked up by the root, or it quickly returns. Also, bitterness is that which quenches the work of the Holy Spirit in us. At the end of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. In Deuteronomy 29, Scripture compares the roots of bitterness to turning our hearts away from the Lord and serving other gods. Bitterness is serious. Bitterness and all of its attendant heart-deadening symptoms, jealousy, envy, strife, anger, evil speaking, malice, etc. are tools in the hand of the enemy. He uses these tools to destroy us and to destroy the church. Bitterness is sin. It must be put away before it has its final work. But if we harbor bitterness and we fail to put it away, we continue down the road and we find ourselves at step four. We bite and devour one another and consume one another. This is the final destination along the road to cannibalism. It is an ugly term for an ugly conclusion. This is where Satan stands waving his victory flag. The lust of the flesh has been sated, and yet there is no real satisfaction. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. When we place our confidence in feelings and follow the sincerity of our hearts, hearts which Scripture tells us are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? We are following a road to destruction and we venture further and further from the way. We can't truly know or read our own hearts. Jeremiah goes on to reveal that it is the Lord that searches the heart and tests the mind and gives every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. We must follow the signposts that keep us on the straight and narrow way that leads to life and not destruction. And these signposts are given to us in God's Word. These are signposts that are labeled in gospel truth. Gospel life. 
gospel application and gospel joy. These signposts are filled with God's wisdom and not the wisdom of the world. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast or glory in men. Have you come to a place where you have begun to deviate from the good road? The road that leads to life? Is there any strangeness in your hearts towards someone in your family? Or someone in the church? Do you find yourself putting distance between yourself and others? Is your love for the saints not as sweet as it once was? Are you seeing the weed of bitterness in the thoughts and intents of your heart? The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul in addressing the Galatians, says, Take heed. Take heed to these warnings. Take heed to the warning signs. Warning! Action is needed. The disease is setting in and remedies are called for. But thanks be to God. He is the master physician and He has the cure. When we take heed to the Holy Spirit, when we take heed and fall down on our faces and confess and repent our sins, when we follow the biblical pattern, when we keep short accounts and pursue love with our neighbor, even as we love ourselves, there is healing. There is joy. There is peace. There is life on the road that leads to life. Live together in unity and characterize by service one to another in love. And so next time, we will turn our attention from the negative side of this passage and back toward this, and we will no longer consider the symptoms of the disease and the warnings, but we will look instead at the remedies, 12 remedies that God has in His Word to cure us of this vile disease. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You that we can place our complete confidence in the fidelity of Your Word. For it is Your Word. And Your Word is truth. O oh Lord, we confess the weakness of our flesh. We confess that we are too enamored by worldly wisdom, worldly counsel, and too easily follow a path filled with pain, grief, and broken relationships with our fellow saints. Forgive us, Lord, and lead us ever back to the good path, to that path illuminated by the truth of Your Word and keep us from stumbling. And merciful Lord, pick us up when we do stumble and when we do fall and leave us not lost or alone on the wrong path. We delight and rejoice that You are our God and that You have called us to be Your people. Keep us safely within Your covenant love and grow us and fit us for the good work You have called us to in Your most glorious kingdom. For we come asking these things in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.